Hello, I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is Business. This week, super free economics and super free thinking economists. We hear from Stephen Levitt about the financial crisis and everything from business models for prostitutes to a solution for climate change. Plus, Donald Shoup, an expert on the economics of parking, talks to us about congestion charging, public transport and our love affair with a motor car. I'm Adit Chakraborty and this is a Business from The Guardian. It's a slightly different show this week. There's no panel and instead of our usual slanging match, we've got a couple of extended interviews from two of the most controversial economists of the day. We'll start by hearing from Stephen Levitt. The University of Chicago's self-styled rogue economist made headlines in 2005 with his book Freakonomics, which has now sold more than 4 million copies around the world. The book's a collection of articles based on Levitt's fondness for applying economic theory to unusual subject matters. Levitt was in the UK recently promoting the follow-up to Freakonomics, which has been published. The book's called, of course, Super Freakonomics, and one of the first questions Levitt poses is, why is a street prostitute like a department store Santa? Here's the answer. It's not easy to get data on prostitutes. They don't you know, volunteer to, to send their data to the, to the U.S. government. So what we did is we put our trackers out on the street corners to trick by trick record all of the information about uh, the, the customers and the transactions and the, the acts that were performed and the, the, the way the bargaining went. And, and what we learned in doing this is that uh, it's a particular time of year uh, around our Independence Day and Memorial Day, these summer holidays, there are big get-togethers of family reunions that come from all over the country. And one of the parks I come to is a park where our prostitutes were working. And it's an enormous demand shock, positive demand shock, that some people are content to hang out with their aunt and eat coleslaw, and others uh, are looking for a little more excitement, and they frequent the prostitutes. So like any other entrepreneur, what the prostitutes do is they raise their prices, uh, and they work overtime. But this is the most interesting part that makes them like Department of Santa's. A bunch of women who would never be prostitutes any other time of the year uh, on this, these two weekends a year, they come and they and they become prostitutes to take advantage of the high wages they can earn on those two days. So, prostitutes in Chicago are like department store Santas because, uh, like portly old men who uh, take advantage of seasonal demand shocks that are driven by holidays, prostitutes in the same way uh, seek out employment a few days a, a year to uh, to take advantage of their their attributes. Okay, so that's what the book is about. Questions like that. Let's also talk about what the book's not about, because very early on, you hold your hand up and you say, we're a year into the financial crisis. There'll be hundreds, if not thousands of books written about it. uh, And this book is not one of them. You're a prize winning economist, much lauded. Why on earth wouldn't you talk about the economic crisis? There are two kinds of economics. There's microeconomics and there's macroeconomics. Right? And macroeconomics is the kind of economics that people think about, recessions and financial crises, interest rates and whatnot. And microeconomics is individual behavior. Can you use the tools of economics to say, for me to figure out you know, what, what you'll buy at the grocery store or how I can get you to stop smoking or something like that? And I'm a microeconomist through and through. Very early on in my career, I wanted to be a macroeconomist. And I realized it was too hard. I had no intuition for it. The, the, the complexity of the system that drives the macroeconomy is such that we have very little we can say intelligently. And my view is I'd rather answer a little question and try to answer it well than answer a big amorphous question and, and do it poorly. And, and so this is a book about about, for the most part, answering little questions well as opposed to big questions poorly. Okay, but there is a kind of criticism that's made of, of authors like you um, uh, that the, cri- the, the economic crisis is as much a crisis of economics. And people like Paul Krugman say that 
what economists have, have done too much of is answer nice, cute questions like why are street prostitutes like department store Santas and not enough of how should the economy be run? What would be an effective level of state spending? So Paul Krugman fantasizes herself a macroeconomist. And so if Paul Krugman can take some of the blame for what's happened in the economy, I never even pretended to be about those questions. So you can say that uh, my life would have been more productive if I had um, you know, devoted it to answering, if I had had the ability and uh, diligence to answer the big questions. I would have been just as bad as a macroeconomist as Paul Krugman is bad as a macroeconomist. And so I chose to take a different path, which is to try to answer the kind of questions I can, I can uh, at least answer. So... Uh, okay, I see, never went. Uh, let me just say, so I never went into economics because I was trying to make the world a better place. I mean, economists are self-centered. We're, we're self-motivated, self-interested. I write about the kind of questions I write because they're interesting, right? I write about, you know, is it more dangerous to walk drunk or drive drunk? Is that going to change the world? Well, probably not. But I have fun doing it, and, and people have fun reading about it. And I think to um, to hold everyone to the standard of blaming every economist for the financial crisis and every politician for the political crisis and you know every uh every football player in in the uk for not winning the world cup i mean it's just i mean it's i think it's a it's a crazy sort of exercise to be involved in okay but another criticism that could be made of your method is that you tend to use the old assumptions of economics that people are rational always self-interested always out for themselves and they tend to know how markets work they'll tend to know there's a big spike in demand for prostitutes certain weekends of the year and actually the way we behave is much more complicated than that that actually we're bound by convention and sometimes we don't know all the information that's out there absolutely so i i don't think anyone would ever accuse me of uh using rationality i, I so i in fact i abhor the word rationality and and uh, i think it's a ter- it is a terrible thing for economists to do rationality is a, assumes as you said that people know what's going on so I, I really think i use a different set of assumptions which is that people respond to incentives uh, so it's not that the prostitutes understand exactly the the full dynamics of the pricing in in their market. They just know that they show up on Memorial Day last year, and there are a lot of people who want to pay a lot of money for sex acts. So they think, well, last year was pretty good. So that's a rule of thumb. But so I, I think that it's wrong to to say I, you'd be hard pressed to find anywhere in our book where we say that people are purely self interested, or we you know, we think people respond to incentives, financial incentives, and you know social pressure as well. And we even devote a chapter to thinking about altruism and the extent to which the economic uh, research that's been going on does or does not support the idea of altruism. We actually come to a rather interesting conclusion, which is not that a lot of research people said that's happened in the lab supports altruism, but we really say, well, it doesn't. It, it, it teaches us about the lab, but it doesn't teach us about altruism. What it teaches us is that you can get college students to do absolutely whatever you want them to do in the lab by, by playing around with incentives, but it doesn't teach us very much about the real world. When we hear economists saying, actually, we've got to rethink the tenets of our profession, do you, it sounds like you're saying it's not really broken, there's no need to fix it. Well, I think um, the new, you know, what you call the new economics, behavioral economics, I think there's a place for it. Uh, behavioral economics builds in many of the insights of psychology to point out that, that there are, uh, you know, that, that people don't always behave as, as we economists think that they should. Richard Thaler, who's the, the darling of the, of, of the conservative government to be, uh, is a leader in that, and he's a good friend of mine. I have great respect for him. Uh, I think that for any given problem, there are many useful approaches. Uh, the approach I take is a traditional economic approach in many ways, but not, not, a, you know, not with blinders on. I apply economics to places that's never been applied before, you know, about the names that you give to your children or whether these, your state agent is, is ripping you off. So, so in some sense, I'm a traditional econo- economist, but um, you know, some people have 
some people change the methodology. I've just changed the target of the subjects that I study. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Stephen Levitt there. More from him later. But let's pause for a moment and move on to cars. Parking space is becoming increasingly scarce and ever more expensive. And if you think it's bad in cities like London and Manchester, the situation's even worse in America, especially in New York, Chicago and LA. Well, Donald Shoup is Professor of Urban Planning at UCLA, and on a rather dodgy line from Los Angeles, he told me it's time to rethink our approach to parking. Parking spaces, at least in big cities like London and New York, are some of the most valuable real estate on earth. And yet we uh, give most of them away for uh, almost nothing to cars. Uh, so we have expensive housing for people and, and, and cheap parking for cars. So I think we have our priorities the wrong way around. And what would, what, what's your kind of big idea? Well, the idea that's catching on in the United States is to uh, charge what some cities call performance prices for uh, curb parking, is that they uh, they try to set prices uh, for curb parking, you know, the meter rate, so that about uh, 85% of the spaces are occupied and about uh, 15% are open for new arrivals. So nobody has to drive around hunting for parking. And what you're advocating is you charge more at certain times a day for those parking spaces is that right yes uh, more at the peak hours and less at the off-peak hours it could be free at sometimes but uh, at, at the peak hours it, it doesn't help to keep the price down so that uh, drivers have to circle the block uh, endlessly uh, polluting the air and uh, congesting traffic and interfering with pedestrians. So some cities are calling these performance prices because they make the parking system perform well and they make the transportation system perform well. It, it would mean that whenever you go to, to any part of town, on, on every block you'll see one or two vacant spaces uh, ready for you to park in. So nobody can say there's a shortage of parking. Um, that uh, and this price really just depends on demand. And I, I think the right price for, for curb parking is, is sort of like what the U.S. Supreme Court's definition of pornography is, is that I know it when I see it. And if you see that one or two spaces are vacant, the price is right. But if all the spaces are full, the price is too low. And if half the spaces are empty, the price is too high. So you just try to aim for the right occupancy, and and the price will result from that. See, I can't see too many shop owners who'd be thrilled with your way of doing things. Well, what's made it popular in the U.S. and to some extent in Britain, uh, London has this policy of aiming for about an 85% occupancy rate. Uh, What makes this policy popular with businesses is to uh, dedicate the meter revenue for added public services on the metered streets so that when somebody puts money into a parking meter, it comes out the other side and cleans the sidewalk or uh, provides security or plants street trees or pays for street furniture or historic preservation in the area so that the merchants know that when there's a meter in front of their their, their, their business, it will be pumping money into public services for their neighborhood. And therefore, they support this idea of, of performance pricing because the revenue comes back in added public services. What happens in London shows this policy is quite fair, that in London, the boroughs get the parking meter revenue rather than the city or the national government. And so the boroughs have an incentive to 
uh, charge for curb parking is often paid for by outsiders. And in Westminster, which is almost synonymous with, with wealth and has the most expensive housing on earth, Westminster gets more money from its uh, parking spaces than it gets from its property tax. So I think that it's a good source of revenue for public services, and it, it will employ more people because, at least in the United States, that when this money is used to pay for street, you know, added street maintenance and, and sidewalk maintenance, it's often a source of uh, employment for low-income people. Wouldn't a more sustainable solution to the parking problem actually be to increase our investment in public transport rather than to further our reliance upon a means of private transport? Well, some cities in the United States do uh, charge for curb parking, and they provide uh, free transit passes for everybody who works in the meter district. So that uh, if you get a job, say, in downtown Boulder, uh, Colorado, along with that job comes automatically uh, free uh, transit pass paid for by the parking meter rate. So, again, I think that undercuts the idea that this is not fair. I think it's very fair to charge uh, uh, drivers for using some of the most valuable land in the city and, and then using the revenue to pay for free transit for everybody. And as you know, the, mainly the lower-income workers who use mass transit. So I think it's very fair. Let's return now to our interview with Stephen Levitt. The most controversial area of super-free economics is a section on climate change and Levitt's proposed solutions for our environmental crisis. He's received fierce criticism from the Green Lobby for the views he's put forward. I offered him the chance to set the record straight. A lot of people have talked about what I say in the book and what I don't say. Let me start by saying what we actually do what we say in the book. We, we start with the absolute same fundamental scientific facts, which are that the Earth has gotten warmer. And then instead of jumping to the conclusion that, that uh, you need to cut carbon to deal with it, we actually lay out some of the facts about the problems with the carbon mitigation strategy, which are, number one, uh, it's incredibly expensive. The, uh, the estimates that people come up with are, you know, you know trillions of dollars, 1% to 2% of GDP to the end of time. It could cost 15,000 pounds per household uh, to redo your house to make a greenhouse to be energy efficient to meet this sort of carbon mitigation uh, it's expensive. It's a lot of real money. The second problem is that carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a long time, roughly 100 years as a half-life. So anything we do today to reduce carbon will only begin to pay the real benefits 50 to 100 years from now. So even if, if, if we were to cut carbon emissions by 25% or something, something quite radical, uh, the Earth would continue to warm. The third problem is that... Uh, I don't feel the direct benefit of my own actions to reduce carbon. It doesn't matter whether I reduce carbon or not. What doesn't even matter if the UK reduces carbon or not. What matters is this China, India, the United States. I mean, it's it's it, it, it's what is called the collective action problem. And if there's anything that economists have learned over the course of humankind, it's that you cannot rely on seven billion people's good natures and common spirit to all come together and say, let's just all sacrifice to try to solve this world problem. Okay, and maybe you can get. Uh, the people who read your newspaper, I think you probably can get a lot of them to do that. But I think the the, the farmers in India who are burning dung to try and, you know... We hope they'll be read yeah. soon, Stephen. What's that? We hope they'll be read yeah, soon. Uh-huh. Well, uh, not if they're impoverished by uh, all of the efforts to, to not put out carbon. But so what do we really say? So uh, we, I just think it's a pipe dream. I think it's, it is a, a, a fiction and a unrealistic hope to think that carbon dioxide mitigation will be the solution to this problem in the short run. Uh, and so if you really, so we, so we don't really try to answer the problem, you know, how would you get people to cut carbon? Now, that, that would be, it's an interesting question. It's not the one that we look at. We instead say, if you just had an emergency and you had to cool the earth as quickly 
and as efficiently as possible? What would you want to do? Okay, and that question we try to answer, and that's really a very simple question. It's a kind of a technological question, and there are scientists out there, and there are these what are called geoengineering solutions. Some sound like science fiction. Some sound environmentally and, uh, nice. And, and one of the solutions that you hit upon is a hose. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. So they're uh, one of the one of the more science fictiony uh, stories, but it it is actually uh, the engineering's worked out. Is you would just run a hose six miles up into the sky. It's uh, just like a little bit bigger than a garden hose, and you put one at the North Pole, one at the South Pole, and you turn on the spigot, and up comes a, a spritz of uh, sulfur dioxide which they put into the stratosphere, and uh, it would be about one two hundredth of the overall uh, world's generation of sulfur dioxide would be needed because you get it high enough in the stratosphere, it, it stays up there for a very long time, doesn't come down as acid rain. And they believe, uh, based on volcanic evidence, because uh, volcanoes shoot sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere as well, that we can cool the Earth to absolutely whatever temperature we want doing this. Now, of course, it's not a solution to the root cause. It's not going to get rid of the carbon. It could have unintended consequences and risks associated with it. But if the question is, how do we cool the earth if we really need it cool? Or how do we buy ourselves 50 years while technology catches up and we figure out some clever way to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere much more cheaply than we can do it now? Uh, it doesn't seem to me like a crazy kind of insurance policy to have. I mean, we have dental insurance. Why not have planetary insurance? And it's cheap. $200 million, this is your solution. We're not talking trillions of dollars. We're $200 million. But the argument against that would go that we're already in climate change or we're facing climate change that's been caused by huge human intervention on the planet. And what you're proposing is another great human intervention and a, and a big step into the unknown at that. Because we don't know if this hose will work or not. Uh, so I agree we don't know if the hose will work or not, exactly how it works. But what we, um, what we also don't know is what will happen if we do nothing. I, mean, I think we're on a path to do nothing. I mean, we can talk about Copenhagen. We can talk about cutting carbon. Uh, the, 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 the dire scenarios that climate scientists lay out have to do with the Earth getting warmer. Uh, the, everyone involves around the Earth getting warmer. So it just seems pragmatic to me that... If the Earth gets warmer, say, as fast or faster than the climate scientists think, we would want an insurance policy that would that would save us from, say, temperatures rising 6 or 10 degrees Celsius. Now, again, in a first best world, you wouldn't be spraying sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. But given your choices, you know, watching the Greenland ice shelf fall into the ocean or spritzing stuff up there and saying, look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. It might be bad. Now, the nice thing about it is it's completely reversible. Okay, you put it up there for a few years and you don't like what happened because the climate science models that we have aren't good enough. Well, then you stop spritzing it and you figure out something else to do. So, uh, you know, and, and that's, of course, the, the sulfur dioxide one's the last one that we'll actually do. It's kind of a fun one to talk about because it's so different. But, you know, John Latham, a British scientist, has another scheme which just involves putting 10,000 dinghies, uh, solar-powered dinghies into the ocean, and it just sprays up salt water and and the salt then uh, will make clouds over the oceans the oceans are quite dark and so they absorb a lot of heat clouds are white they reflect a lot of heat uh, and so uh, if you just had dinghies putting clouds over three percent of the oceans uh, the climate model suggests that would also cool the earth to roughly whatever temperature we wanted to as well and i just don't see what what an environmentalist you know fluffy clouds that's that's just good doesn't it look you're an academic economist who specialises in microeconomics. You worked with a journalist on producing this book, and we know what softheads journalists are. Um, and you've just gone and stumbled into this whole big argument about global warming. And the response has been a huge amount of criticism aimed at you and Stephen Dubner. Do you think you got out of your depth? No, absolutely not, because we're not trying to answer questions that require 
uh, you know, need to have a PhD in climate science? The answer, uh, we're taking the science as given. But instead of putting the science together, I mean, so look at what, uh, maybe I shouldn't compare myself to Al Gore, but look at what Al Gore and, but, but the people who run in his crowds, the climatized, they put together science with morality and they say, we owe future generations a debt to return the earth the way it is. Well, that part of that is a science that the earth's getting warmer. But the solution is not scientific. And the scientists masquerade around as if, as if the answer of carbon mitigation is coming out of the science, but it's not. Okay, that is something else. That is that is scientists and activists acting as moralists. Okay, I'm putting the science together, the economics, to answer a question which I would think that every environmentalist would want answered, which is, in the case of catastrophe, if the Earth is about to perish, would we not want to have invested a little bit of money, just a few hundred million dollars, so that we could buy enough time to figure out how to save us? Okay, to the extent that environmentalists don't care about the answer to that question. I think you have to question whether environmentalists care about the earth. I mean, it's an insurance policy. I'm trying to figure out what happens when we go wrong. I think the criticisms of it have come because um, environmentalists feel that if these policies are available, they're too cheap, they're too easy, and people will lose the will to do the incredibly difficult and possibly costly task of trying to mitigate carbon. And and I think that environments have painted themselves into a corner saying that carbon mitigation is the only solution we have. And I think in 50 years, if we follow that path, we are going to be in exactly the same place we are now, wringing our hands, uh, watching the earth get warmer, and wondering what we're going to do to solve the problems. And we'll be 50 years behind where we could have been on investing in technology to actually will solve the problems. Stephen Levitt there. We've put links to his blog and details about his new book, Super Free Economics, on our website at guardian.co.uk slash the business. And if you've enjoyed all this talk about economics, put a date in your diary for the 25th of November, when our guest will be political economist Robert Skidelsky, one of the top authorities on John Maynard Keynes. But on that note, it's time to say goodbye. We'll be back in the studio with a full panel next week. I'm Adit Chakraborty, and that was the business. (laughs) 